0: Welcome to Mosaic Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church Leeds based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. 1 Samuel, chapters 13, verse 16 to 14, verses 23. Saul and his son Jonathan and the men with them were staying at Gabeah of Benjamin while the Philistines camped out at Micmas, Raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments. One turned towards Afra in the vicinity of Shual, another towards Beth Haran, and the third towards the borderland overlooking the valley of Zeboiim, facing the wilderness. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel, because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plowshares, mattocks, axes and sickles sharpened. The price was two thirds of a shekel for sharpening plowshares and mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and for repointing goads. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Mikmas. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armour-bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gebeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was a hija, who was wearing an ephod. He was the son of Ichabod's brother Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Sene. One cliff stood to the north towards Michmas, and the other to the south towards Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor-bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, Come on then, we will cross over towards them and let them see us. If they say to us, Wait there until we come to you, We will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field and those in the outposts and raiding parties. And the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Saul's lookouts at Gibeah and Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Then Saul said to the men who were with him, Muster the forces and see who has left us. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. Saul said to Hijah, Bring the ark of God. At that time it was with the Israelites. While Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult of the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run. They joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel, and the battle moved on beyond Beth-Avon. It's good to be with you guys. Um, I was here, I think it was like a couple of months ago,
1: um, and that was the first time I'd come here. And then this morning, I was at the south. And for me, it's been really helpful um, because I kind of serve and help kind of lead some bits at Hyde Park Headingley, but Like, to get a picture of what God's doing with us all, like, is really, really helpful. Um, So I wonder what that picture is. For me, the picture I see maybe isn't that we have it all worked out, Um, and I think that's probably the honest answer, isn't it? But what I do see is a load of people pulling together, stepping up to make things happen, and that's really exciting, and we're kind of treading new ground. I haven't kind of ever been part of a church that's done anything kind of like this, and It's quite an exciting place to be, I think you'll agree. Um, But the reality is, for a lot of us, this can be quite difficult, can't it? Um, Maybe it's just me, I didn't see any nods, but I'm going to take it that you all think this can be difficult sometimes. We have our brave days, where we're up for taking on the world, and then we have our not so brave days. We have the times when it feels that little bit easier just to retreat, and just to kind of play safe. We feel less confident. And I think the story we're going to be looking at today can help us with that. Um, and it's a kind of a timely message for us as a church. So we're going to be kind of camping out in 1 Samuel from kind of thirteen sixteen all the way through to fourteen twenty three. So you can follow along in your Bibles, um, that would be great, and then bits will come up on the screen in time. So where are we up to? What are we seeing? Well, today our focus is really on two characters. We're looking at Saul, we're looking at Jonathan, we're looking at father and a son, and their relationship, I'll say, is it's strange at best. It really is. And a bit more on that later. We're going to see how they respond in tough times. Where they respond when it looks like the odds are stacked against them. And they respond differently. But more on that later. So where are we up to? What have we seen? Well, we're in a pretty dark period in Israel's history. Um, but we're going to get to see God show up in a pretty huge way. But it's bleak at best, like it really is. I don't want to sugarcoat it. It is bleak. You know it's bad when... Israel's rejected God and the leaders he's appointed for a king like all the unbelieving nations around them. Back in chapter 8, the Israelites begged him for a king like all the other nations. You know, they've got one, we want one. And the kind of irony with this is that God was their king, yet what does he do? He gives them one anyway. He gives them a giant of a man, we told his told his name Saul, a handsome man, a man who's like head taller than all the others, it gives us all the detail, and this guy, he kind of looks the part, he's strong, he's charismatic, he's tall, a bit like myself, no I'm joking, but, but I shouldn't have said that, <laughs> we'll just cross that bit out of the podcast, cheers. But that is what we're told about him, and, but very quickly we learn that he has some pretty significant character flaws, if we look in chapter 10, 22, this is like the equivalent of his coronation You know, his establishment to be king. This is like his big moments. And the people say, where is this man? And the reply they get is, he's hiding in the baggage. Now, there's no kind of hint in the text to any kind of pre-coronation hide-and-seek going on here, right? There's no game. No one's like forgot to tell him it's over. That's not what's happening. He is just hiding. He's retreated and he's hiding. You know, it's bad when the king's son's fighting out, fighting the battle, and the king is hiding in the rear. In chapter 13, we're told Jonathan went ahead and led the attack. He attacked the Philistine outposts at Geba. You know, it's bad when the king resorts to religious rituals instead of waiting for God to speak. We find that in, um, chapter 15, we see this. Saul panics. Like, he panics. And instead of waiting for God to speak, he goes and he takes on the role of a priest, which he was forbidden to do. You know, it's bad when God's prophet Samuel, like, completely leaves Saul without guidance. And he's surrounded by a multitude of Philistines. We see that in verse 15. And finally, you know it is bad when only the king and his sons have the weapons. Verse 22, so on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul or Jonathan had a sword or spear in hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. So guys, you get the idea. It's pretty bleak. This is a dark moment. And you know, we see Saul's army, it's been whittled down from 300,000 to 600. That is what's happened to his army. And no weapons you can kind of just imagine it like the Israelites are there like, Saul, are you kidding me? Not only are we 600 and they're like 300,000 or more, like the sand on the seashore, the Bible tells us, but I haven't got a sword. You want me to take my little, like, shovel, take it to the enemy and go, can you just sharpen this for me? Because I've got a battle with you later and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this. Like, it's ridiculous. You're like, this is the worst army ever. Like, give me a transfer. Like, seriously, I'm, I'm out. I know I would be. And, like, that is where they're up to. This is their, this is the outworking of what they asked for. Let's not forget that. They were the ones who asked for Saul. Well, they asked for Saul. They asked for a king. And he said, we'll give you Saul. He said, I was your king. They were the ones who asked for this. I wonder if it was still ringing in their ears. We want a king. So, scary times for Saul and Israel. What happens next? Well, is that it? It would be pretty depressing if it was. But it isn't it, because there's another response. And you see, no matter how bad things look, we always have a choice with how we're going to respond. We see that, no matter what, no matter what the outlook the other response, and here's where we get introduced to Jonathan, okay, Saul's son, and this is where we're really going to zone into the story. So it says, One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And later we're told, no one knew they left. Later in verse 4, On each side of the path that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and one was called Senna. And in verse 6, Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. So we have two totally different responses here to ultimately the same situation. We see in Saul, fear, hopelessness, and we see in Jonathan, trust and faith. Now what's going on here? I wonder, is Jonathan more holy? Is he just stronger? Well, it doesn't appear so. What's actually happening here? Or is, is Jonathan just like that reckless friend that we all had? Like, you know the one. Like, it doesn't matter, like, how many of them there are. Who said what to him? How old they are? Like, the kid at school who's just, like, want to take on the nation. Like, is he just that reckless guy? This is the kid who's, like, two years old. He's just crawling, and he's, like, made his way to the top of the climbing frame, and he's, like, standing, balancing, and, like, mom's in the kitchen with, like, handfuls of hair getting down before he falls and loses any more brain cells. Like, is he that guy? Is he just no fear, Jonathan? Well, I actually don't think he is. And I think that for different reasons, but the main reason is this. I think he responds this way because he uses his memory. See, he remembers Israel had been here before. Uh, if we look in chapter 7, verse 10, it says this. This is where Israel were when they were totally helpless before. It says, while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day, the Lord thundered with a loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were rooted before the Israelites. Now, I'm just going to take a punt and guess that Jonathan remembered. Like We've been here before, and he remembered this has happened before. And just kind of as a little side note, when we're kind of facing these, what feels like giants or feels like mountains, like for us... If we take our cues from Jonathan, it might not be new, fresh revelation in the moment that gets us through, but remembering his faithfulness in getting us to this point at this time, I think C.S. Lewis talks about you rate the past for the embers that give you the confidence to move forwards, and that's what we can do, and it seems that that is what Jonathan did. So, two responses to the same situation, two characters, I wonder who do we default to be like? Like, who do we see ourselves in sometimes? I reckon sometimes we like to think, yeah, we're brave. You know, staring death in the face like Jonathan, moving forward quickly. We like to think that's us. Maybe a lot of the guys are sitting there inside going, yeah, yeah, that's me, that's me. But I also think if we are really honest with ourselves in our kind of less confident moments, we have a different reaction. And I think the tree can start to look pretty attractive. And here's the thing. Where, I want to ask, where do you kind of retreat to? What can be our place of like hopelessness and fear? Um, where are we tempted to go to be passive? Because here's the thing. The tree, I think it looks safe. I think it looks secure, like for Saul. But actually, I think it's a sense of... It's really false security. Here's the myth. I'm going to say this one's been around for a while. It's like, if I just... Live a really safe life. If I just am really comfortable and don't take any risks, then I'll be fine. You know, it's a way of, like, protecting ourselves. And I just think it's a lie. I think the tree isn't really saving anyone. So where do we run? How do we retreat? How do we seek to stay safe and just kind of sit on what God's doing and what he's kind of given to us? Is it kind of living our, starting to love our lives a little bit through our kids Is it like sport? Is, does like football become our main thing? Is it box set after box set, series after series, like pouring our time into something that isn't even real? Like, what is it? Because I think it's probably going to be quite subtle for us. Like for Saul, he didn't like down tools, pack up, quit and go home. But what he did do was in the moment in a battle, he went and sat under a tree and ate fruit while he was the king. Like he was, the people The people were meant to be looking to him and he just seems to be passive in the moment. I know for me, how this kind of works out is that, and I needed like people to help me with this. I kind of want clever enough to work this out for myself. But I would say I'd get asked to do something. So it was like speak to a youth group or like lead something. And the very first thing I think is, no way. Like, not me, I think I'm not like, brave enough, I'm not clever enough, I'm not capable enough. These were all the things that would just rise to the surface. I'd start to retreat to this thing of like self-pity and like self-doubt. But the truth is, there was something a lot deeper going on in my heart. There were different questions that needed to be asked. And actually, the questions that were things that were going on in my heart was, what if people don't think I've done a good job? Or what if I don't get asked to do it again? What if people don't like me? What if people just don't think I'm that great? These were the real questions. And a friend helped me and he says, you know what, Rich? You don't really need to worry about any of that. Do you know why? And I was thinking, here we go. Big encouragement, pat on the back. He's going to send me, i going to do a great job after this. And he just said, you don't need to worry because none of it's really about you anyway. I was like, That's new, <laughs> cheers, mate. But that—that that actually was true. I was making it about myself, and sometimes probably still do. And instead of it being about how I can serve and how I can meet a need, because I've been asked to do something, it was more about like what I can kind of get from it, deep down. And my full security, like my tree that I would run to, is like. The temptation just to say no, just to say I'm not no, I'm just going to duck out. That was my false, that was my tree, my kind of false security. And don't get me wrong, sometimes we say no and it's for all the right reasons, but for sometimes we say no and we know deep down it's probably for all the wrong ones, and for me it was for the wrong reasons. And we see none of that in Jonathan. Like, I can't big Jonathan up enough to you. Like, he Just trust God's going to come through for him. And he goes into some scary situations and circumstances. So where are we up to? Well, we've looked at Saul's response. We've looked at Jonathan's. We've looked at where we kind of might be tempted to fall in the middle. But I want to take a turn for a second. And I want us to think about how do we respond to other people's faithful response? Okay, so when we see the faithfulness of others, how do we respond Maybe when others do really well and succeed, maybe when others get the opportunity that deep down we would really like to have, how do we respond? Are we like tear down bitter people? or Are we able to celebrate each other's successes and like support each other, stand with each other, like build each other up? Because we see two responses to this and one of them is in our story. Later on, you know, Saul... After Jonathan like seeks to save Israel, this is what Saul does. First he stops the army from eating, like just random. And then next, out of kind of envy and bitterness, he tries like to kill his own son. So just if you're tempted and you know you don't know which quite well, that is the one we're not going for. <laughs> kind of envy, bitterness leading to attempted murder. Let's steer right around that one, guys. I think we all can have a general consensus, that's the good idea. So who are we to be like, okay? Who are we to be like? Well, who's playing the background in the story? Who's playing the background role? The armor bearer. The armor bearer. Let me add, I want one and I want to be one. Now, I'm not talking about those weird battle reenactments where grown men run off into the Field with swords and I know that happens and if anyone does that I'm sorry I'm not talking about that but what I am talking about is like deep friendship and loyalty and that is what we see just look at the armor bearer's response to what Jonathan's proposing when Jonathan says come let's go up to the mountain and fight it's met with this response do all you have in mind I am with you heart and soul guys do me a favor take one fist in the air say I am with you heart and soul <laughs> I wasn't joking I am with you heart and soul that was I think south of better no offense but guys we have got to work on this and that is response and I just see that and I'm like that is beautiful that is friendship that is trust it's full-blooded it's not half-hearted I say you need an armor bearer and you should want to be one to others what an important lesson this teaches us to a world watching that's full of shallow friendships where it's about individual glory. And there's just not a hint of that here. The Bible has seriously got something to say on this. I used to um, live in Manchester and a close friend of mine, um, dad, he now leads like a large church in Manchester, but before that he was in the police. And... He wasn't just in the police, but he was the, one of the guys who would go and sit in the back of the van, get tooled up, and he was like part of the kind of people who would go and raid some of the most dangerous houses in Manchester. Okay, that was kind of his job. And he told me all sorts of stories. Like he was going through doors where he had really no clue what was on the other side sometimes. yeah, He had crossbows fired at him and all sorts. Like, this is the kind of houses that he was going into. And I remember um, sitting, we was at a camp, I think it was like New Wine or something, and we were sitting around, and somebody asked his wife who was sitting there with him, said, how did you cope every day knowing that this is the kind of place where he was going into? Like Those are the kind of, that was what his job entailed, and that is day in, day out. How did you cope? And her answer always kind of sticks with me, and she said, I tell you, it's quite simple. I knew that every day he had Brian standing here and he had Mike standing here, and they were right by his side, and at any moment, one of them would step in front of anything for him. And as she said it, like shivers went down the back of my spine, and I just remember the words coming out, of and thinking, "That is true friendship." And it's not surprising that those guys became like his best friends, is it? The, the irony is now he kind of leads a church, and he says that it's a bit of a blessing and a curse. Because now his bar for friendship is kind of fairly high. Um, you know, do you want to have a coffee? And by the way, would you risk your life for me? Like, and he, he says he can spot a superficial friendship a mile off. Um, that's quite a challenge to us, isn't it? That now, you know, sometimes deeper relationships within the police than sometimes he sees in the church. That is a challenge to us. Here at Mosaic, I think we want to ask a question like, who's standing next to you? And who are you standing next to? For us, we kind of express this like through accountability groups. This is simply twos and threes who meet together to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to tell each other the truth about what's going on in our lives. And like this stuff's really important. But I also know it can be really hard sometimes, especially if you're new, to find that. So what I'd say is this fight starts with just finding like that friendship. And then over time, that person can become like an armor bearer to you. So, what does it take to respond like the armor-bearer did? I think it takes a few things. Ultimately, humility, love. But mainly, I think we've got to be more caught up with God's story and less about our own. And we've got to realize that really, his story is our story and that we all have a role to play. What will hinder you from having the freedom to do this? I think it's pride. I think pride and a narrow view of the world that kind of zones in on our own successes and accomplishments and even flaws and failures because it's still all about us either way, that is what can stop us. To quote Tim Keller, he says this about pride. He says, pride is like the carbon monoxide of the soul. You can't smell it. You don't know you're breathing it. You just go to sleep and it kills you. And Saul's life seems to be characterized by it. Instead of seeking forgiveness, he continued throughout his life, like defended himself, blamed others, tried to cover up sin, tried to pretend like nothing happened. And eventually, it led to his downfall. So it goes, what have we looked at? What well, have seen? How do we respond when the odds are stacked against us? How do we respond to others' faith? But finally, I want to spend a bit of time looking at the intervention, because this is where we are in the story. We'll read it together. Saul's still under the tree, and Jonathan and the armor bearer are mobilized and ready to go. And we pick up in chapter fourteen, verse eight. Jonathan said, Come then. We will cross over towards them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will go sorry, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, we will climb up, because That will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come up and we will teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor-bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed some 20 men in the area of about half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and fields and those in the outposts and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. And later, this is kind of the concluding verse to this section, Summarize like this, verse 23. So on the day of the Lord, sorry, on that day the Lord saved Israel and the battle moved on beyond beth So what do we see? God comes through. When Israel looked like they were but a whisker away from destruction, like he intervenes on their behalf. He sends a panic and the ground physically shakes. God proves his character again. He is to be trusted and he intervenes. I don't know what you think when, about the word intervention, but in a previous job, I used to work with some young people who had just pretty messy backgrounds, um, and I got introduced to one lad who was 14, 15, and I was once sat in a, in a room kind of discussing where his future was gonna go, and I heard just a load of things about his life that I did not know, like there was past abuse, there was like, dr- like drug abuse, there would be people coming in and out, he saw things that, like, a two and three, four year old, all the way through his life, really, they should never see. Like, never see. There were times when, like, the police constable in the room read out this transcript of somebody finding him on the street at three years old, because he was in the middle of the road, and somebody had to pull over, pick him up, and go to the house where, like, they didn't even really know that he had left. Those were his circumstances, and he needed an intervention. Like, he was totally helpless literally somebody needs to reach into that circumstance and say like we need to do something here so interventions happen we're totally helpless and when all of the options are exhausted and that is the case for Jonathan and his armor bearer as they climbed up to the Philistines they had placed themselves in that place of God unless you do something here unless you move like I am finished like this is over and with that in mind I just want to kind of zone out from this story for a second. Because where in this relatively small-scale battle. God saves his people for a time. We read and we find out that there are other battles to be fought. And again and again, the people were disobedient. And he had to intervene again. And they were disobedient. And he had to intervene again. And this has happened time and time again. So what's the solution? Well, I believe it's laid out for us. In a much greater battle fought, where we were introduced to a more faithful man than Jonathan, and a better companion and friend than the armor bearer could ever be. And we see flashes of him in the story. In chapter 13, when Samuel says, God has sought a man after his own heart. Yes, that applies to David, and we'll get introduced to him later. But I'm not talking about David. Because unlike in this battle where God saves his people for a time, there was a greater battle to be fought on a much bigger stage 2,000 years later, and that was at the cross where Christ died. And unlike every other intervention by God until then, this time it was final. You see, if Jonathan is the true and better soul of the story, Jesus is by far the true and better Jonathan whose response of obedience outweighs all we've seen so far and ever will see. And it's because of his obedient response that we have the freedom not to worry about failure, what people think of us. We don't constantly fight a battle where we're never sure of the outcome because it's no longer about our successes or failures. It's about where he succeeded in our place. And he knows what it is to be like us. Do you realize that? He faced his own time under a tree in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he did not falter. Like Jonathan, he climbed a hill to fight a battle, but all of his, his armor bearers were nowhere to be seen. He's 12. had deserted him, and one was even busy denying him at the time. And when we know what he's done for us, We can draw the strength from that, not to retreat like Saul, not to retreat to full security, but in that we find the freedom from fear of failure under the banner that is the grace of God given to us. Not to play safe, but to fully go for it. You know, it's not about how strong and how brave and how capable you think you are. It's about how strong, it's about how brave, it's about how capable He was for us. And how do we know this? Well, Paul later in the Bible puts it to Timothy, a young apprehensive leader, and he puts it like this. And we get clues that Timothy didn't always find it the easiest to step up to the plate. And this is what he says. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's not just get on with it. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Crack the whip harder. It's not in yourself, Timothy, but it's in Christ. In it, by his grace given to you, be strong. You see, to tell Timothy to be strong in himself would be like, especially when he he was clear that he was feeling weak, it would be like telling a horse to fly or a little 12-year-old to go, there's a ring over there. There's a guy called Mike Tyson waiting for you, and you'll be fine. Just put on the gloves and go for it. Be strong, little man. You can do it. Like, it ain't going to help. It's not going to help at all. There is no place for it. Yet, somewhere within the inexhaustible grace of God, we can find the strength to step up it's not about us, it's all about him. You may feel like you're under a tree right now and you're not sure whether he's going to come through. I'm going to say the cross says to you, he's already come through and he always will. And it might not look like we expect it to look, but he's faithful and true and he keeps to his word. So how's this going to play out for us? Well, I think it's going to be a few things for some of us. It might be to say yes to a few things we've been saying no to for a long time. It might be to dream big. Yeah, really dream some dreams about what you could do because so far some of these dreams you've had have been just like cramped by your own like, view of how capable you are. And we need to step into how capable he is and dream some dreams. And you know what? If we do some stuff and we fail, he'll teach us something through it and it's fine. Maybe it's like we've got a special offering coming up Like, what a way to trust him. Like, I'm not going to retreat to this tree of like, I just need to make sure I'm okay. But actually I can go, no, God, you've done a thing in my life and I'm going to trust you for the future and I'm going to invest in heaven. Maybe that is for some of us. Maybe it's just to be open with our faith in the workplace. Maybe being bold with our faith in the workplace has felt like a step too far. And actually, we draw the strength from him and go, we can. It's not about what they think of me anyway. And I want them to know about Jesus. Maybe it's to like lead a mission group. Maybe it's to start a mission group. Maybe it's to be on the core team of one. How can you support in that way? How can you step up and lead in that way? Maybe it's church planting. Maybe in this nation or in the nation beyond. There are so many different ways that this can outwork in our lives. So, guys, just closing. What's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is step up, be courageous, be brave, go for it. What's the truth of our story? So often, we're just crippled. On our own, we ain't going to do it. We're going to run to other things. Fear of failure is just too much. Christ responded in a way we never could. And now in him, we find the freedom from fear of failure. Not to play safe, but to go for it. And that is the truth of the gospel. I want to pray. Father God, I thank you so much for what you reveal to us through your word. Lord, there are deep truths in here that Lord, just can help us with everyday life. And Lord, so often, Lord Jesus, we just need to be reminded just to, to pick them up, to walk in what they say. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your son. Father God, I thank you so much for what he accomplished in a place that we never could. Lord, he responded in a way we never could, all for us. Father God, I pray for anyone here who this isn't a reality for, they haven't made that step of faith. Lord, I pray for those people who want to be free from the fear of failure and other people's opinion of themselves, who are maybe thinking, man, what would that be like? What would that be like to have my identity so in someone else, a perfect man who lived and died for me that I don't have to care about what other people think of me. Father God, I pray for those people. Lord Jesus, would they find the boldness to talk to somebody after this, to make a step of faith. And Lord, it's not like you haven't made it for us already. Thank you, Jesus. You're mighty now.